Good evening, friends, <clears throat> fellow Dhamma fairers, O oh, children of the noble ones, fellow medium sized beings. I was just sitting in here uh, at the 6 30 meditation period, and there was a very uh, sweet energy in the hall. can feel the uh, cumulative uh, say energetic field or power of uh, the efforts here over these weeks. felt like I could kind of piggyback on that. Um, thank you for, for your practice. Bow to you for the sincerity of your in- efforts here with appreciation and respect. I offer you that now and always. We hear this path of practice in in this meditation that we do. Uh, It's spoken about in different ways at different times and and at different times, different ways of of, uh, thinking about it or relating to it might be uh, more meaningful to us at different times. So, and people talk about um, the practice unfolding in uh, stages of insight and and uh, stages of enlightenment following this uh, progress of insight. It's one map or way it's spoken about. Some people talk about realizing one's Buddha nature, one's true nature, or resting in natural great perfection these different different ways that we might uh, think about this this path we walk this realization the buddha was pointing to realizing the truth of the way things really are in the deepest possible sense and there's one way that um i think is always useful and always powerful way of thinking about this practice is in terms of the, um, the development of what are called the paramis or paramita in Sanskrit. And in this tradition, it's said that there are these 12 noble, beautiful qualities. Um, and the Buddha is said to have developed these over countless lifetimes. And there are some volumes, the collections of stories called Jataka tales and stories of uh, the bodhisattva's lives, lifetimes, different lives. Sometimes I tell those stories as part of talks, and often the Buddha uh, takes birth as an animal, different animal realms, and and uh, they, you can see them as literal stories of past lifetimes, or uh, some people uh, find it more useful to see them as teaching fables. There's one uh, place in, in one teaching where the Buddha is speaking to uh, Sariputta, is one of his chief disciples. Sariputta has asked this question, how many qualities are there, Lord, issuing in Buddhahood? And the Buddha replies, there are, Sariputta, ten qualities that issue in Buddhahood. What are the ten? Giving, 
<coughs> giving, Sariputta, is a quality issuing in Buddhahood. Virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. These are the qualities that issue in Buddhahood. And we can see these as a description of, of the path, the sense of, <clears throat> of these, uh, developing these qualities in our practice, in our lives, and as a quality, as a description of the quality of the awakened mind itself, the sense of these being brought uh, to perfection, fully developed, completely perfected, and then being the natural expression in the world of this understanding of this realization and the mind heart no longer <clears throat> ruled by the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion. Say these qualities in the same way that one could say the Brahma Viharas are there. They're the natural response of the mind of wisdom and compassion. And I think this way of <clears throat> relating to practice as the ripening of paramis is really uh, much more common <clears throat> probably in, in some of the Buddhist Asian countries, certainly in places where I've spent time in Burma, Thailand, maybe especially in Burma. Um, the practice is spoken about this way. The understanding that these are developed um, not necessarily in an even way, and that, that there are those in whom certain paramis are highly developed. And I think this has to do with the tendency in these countries to um, see practice as unfolding over lifetimes in the sense of the, the mythical story of these countless lifetimes of the Buddha perfecting these. They tend to take a very broad view of the practice in this way. And, um, this relationship to the idea of rebirth that <clears throat> really permeates these cultures. It's understood as being part of this process. What if this retreat is just about working on perseverance for you? Steadfastness in some way, renunciation, Patience, or this whole lifetime, just some energy towards uh, bringing kindness. As recently, I was talking to a friend, a student of mine, who was saying it was hard for him when he meets somebody new and the first thing they ask is, what do you do? Rarely people say, what if people say, what do you value? What about that for a first question? What do you value? It was hard for him because he, he cobbles his livelihood together from a lot of different things and he lives very simply and he values more time in his days and life than he does, um, you know, our, our work ethic so strong in this culture and, and we justify our existence by what we do and it's hard for him because he couldn't say, well, I'm a cabinet maker. And so I said, well, what if you said, what you do is you, you try to bring a little more kindness into the world. What if, you, what if you said that when someone says, what do you do? 
or I'm perfecting the paramis. I'm working on renunciation this lifetime. I try it sometime. But whether or not this sense of rebirth, you know, that might not be meaningful. But we can see this in our moment-to-moment experience. You know, how many different births, lives, deaths do we experience in a single day here? You know, I see people, you know, it's been two or three days and, and they say, well, you know, it was like another lifetime. When I come into a meeting, it's like, it's like lifetimes have passed since I saw, saw you the last time. And we take births in all these different realms. You know, just in a single period of meditation, we, we take birth into heaven realms and realms of despair and anguish, everything in between. And through this whole ebb and flow, these qualities of the paramis are constantly being developed. We don't look at things that way so often. And sometimes we do meet someone where it seems like one or more of these are very highly developed and they just seem to be naturally kind or generous or have this abundance of energy. I think of my mother sometimes when I reflect on this. My mother comes into my mind. She had so much energy. I didn't notice it. She was just my mom when I was growing up. But, you know, she took care of the house at that this time and in my household, very traditional at that time when I was young and she was, she did the housework, she did the cooking. She also made this beautiful garden, grew some of the vegetables we ate and beautiful flowers there. And she was a good potter. She, when I was old enough to start school, she, she pursued the art uh, interest that she'd had when she was younger. And she she was very talented. She made almost all the dishes that we used in the house. <clears throat> I still have some of them. She was part of a cooperative arts gallery as part of that. In her, you know, when she was 75, she started this cooperative art <laughs> crafts gallery. I think it was in her 70s anyway. She made a lot of her own clothes. She did all this volunteer work, delivering meals to elderly people who were homebound and teaching in... Uh, in different communities where her skills were um, of use. And she raised four children, had friends, taught nursery school, all these things. And it wasn't hyper. She was just, it all with this ease and a kind of grace. And just how she was. She just had this, feels like that parami was highly developed in my mom. I think looking at our practice in terms of this is, is so useful and powerful because it really expands the breadth of what we think of as practice. You know, we think it gets very narrow. It's this stuff we do sitting in this hall. That's one slice of it. And it cuts through our tendency that's so strong to be constantly judging and assessing looking for evidence of progress, and mentally comparing and all the projections we have about everybody else. And, you know, always looking for, am I doing it right? Is it working? Is it working? Am I, am I getting it? 
Am I, am I getting it? Everyone else is clearly, they're getting it. What if they get it all? There's none left for me. <laughs> Whatever it is. You know, when we judge our experience, then we judge ourselves based on our perception of that experience. Because this is happening, I must be something wrong with me. And we just overlook all these qualities just every time we're willing to begin again. We're cultivating this beautiful quality of steadfastness, perseverance. So tonight is is show and tell. When I was a kid, first in school, we had show and tell. We could bring in something. So I brought in one of my favorite Dharma books. It's called Frog and Toad Together. It's a level two reading with help, which is about my speed this time of day, and actually a lot of the time. And I want to read a story. This is by Arthur Lobel, and it's a Newbery Prize winner. And there's a series of these books there. There's some of the best books out there. (laughs) And the story I want to share with you today is called The Garden. And I can't show you the pictures, but frog is quite green and toad is rather brownish and more lumpy, as toads will be. And I'm dedicating this story in part to the froggies who are serenading us these days. I'm very fond of frogs and, and all beasts. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, frog, he said. Yes, said frog. It is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon? asked Toad. Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, Now seeds, start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds, start growing! Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise? he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. (laughs) You are shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow? asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. And soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. (laughs) They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to his garden with some candles. (laughs) I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. And the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music for his seeds. He's playing the violin. 
Toad looked at the ground. The seed still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. <clears throat> then Toad felt very tired and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toads, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. Well, you may have figured out where I'm going with this talk. <laughs> but we use this image, I do anyway, this sense of meditation being like planting seeds. That's what we can do. We can plant the seeds. It's a good image, I think. But a lot of the time, we're like toad and our seeds don't sprout as fast as we want them to. And the first question we ask is how, ask is how soon? And we start looking immediately, wanting our seeds to have sprouted and be bearing fruit. And we don't see results, and so maybe we start yelling at our seeds, yelling at ourselves internally, and this judging we're not doing it right, we're not any good. And maybe we try some strategies like Toad, with his stories and his music and poetry, but usually we're not as kind as Toad when his seeds were frightened. We don't read them stories and poems. We blame them, we blame ourselves. We blame the teachers or the teachings. You know, we're a very, here in the United States at least, a very impatient society. We want everything done fast. We want quick results. We tend to lose interest really quickly if things aren't happening on the schedule we think they should. We're looking for a better way, and better is always quicker. Some kind of shortcut. We want the shortcut to enlightenment. It reminds me of the story uh, that I heard when they first started the Insight Meditation Society in, in Barrie, Massachusetts, where I, I teach a lot and have practiced a lot. And, and very early on, they got a letter. It was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> That's, we want instant meditation. <laughs> and because we're so impatient, we tend to understand, misunderstand what patience really is. And You know, as children, we're often told to be patient, or that patience is a virtue. And, and usually we hear this as, repress your feelings. Something like that, you know, some some grown-up thing that we're supposed to put on. We think of patience, I just have to, to bear this and not show my feelings. Or we, we grit our teeth, we, we bear down, and maybe we make it through, we do, but we're tight and contracted around experience, disconnected. We really, you know, patience, it's not about just enduring, waiting, praying for something to change. We, we train ourselves to apply steady, clear attention, 
to what we're doing without shrinking away when it's difficult, when there are challenges. There's, there are going to be challenges no matter what. If we're going to take this practice to any depth, there's going to be times when it's difficult. We need to um, bring some determination and consistency and this willingness to persevere through the ups and downs and all the changes because the fruits of the practice, they really, they really uh, reveal themselves in their own time and they, they're the fruits of this steady, gentle application of effort. We don't want to learn about patience because we usually have to do that when we're in the middle of impatience. That's when we, we have to learn about patience. You know, <clears throat> we have to learn about it when it's difficult because when things are going the way we want, it's not an issue. It's easy to be patient when we like what's happening. Things don't always go the way we want. It's not always pleasant. You know, in Buddhist cosmology, it's said there are these different realms. You know how many realms, Susie, do you remember? Six? No, there's like 31 planes. The full, I don't know, there's all these realms of existence, but there are these heavenly realms that are said to be, it's just always pleasant. Only pleasant Vedana. And that might sound kind of good to you right about now. Right? Be willing to take some time there, spend a little, a little time in one of those realms of only pleasant. But it's said that the, um, you know, and there are times where we, we take birth in one of those realms for a period of time where it is very pleasant. That happens. But it's said that this, this realm, this plane, is said to be the best plane for realizing Dhamma. It's this balance of conditions where it's, it's not so pleasant that there's, there's an, it's, it's not so pleasant that there's no inspiration of any kind to practice. And it's not so difficult that we're just crushed under the weight of suffering. There's a balance there. It's said to be the best place to practice. We get this mix. When difficult times in, in meditation, in our life, if we hold them in the right way, they can help us to build a determination and a, a kind of inner strength. And I think it's really helpful to relate to difficult times in this way. As we come to see that struggle and anger, you know, they just aren't practical. They don't work. If they worked, it'd be one thing, but they don't actually bring any results. They don't, they don't help. But if we cultivate an attitude of care, a kind of respect for the times when it's difficult. See them as opportunities to develop perseverance and tolerance. Reminds me of a story. There was, someone told me of a very uh, well-known, very famous uh, teacher, highly regarded, lives the life of an alms mendicant in the robes of the Theravada uh, monks. And... um, he was on his own retreat and the place where he was practicing at the monastery where he lived, there's a, a, it was a shrine, a, a, a chetti, a, a pagoda, stupa. And he was doing walking meditation, circumnambulating, and there was a, a Buddha Rupa shrine on one side of the 
of the uh, of the stupa, and he every time he came around, he would bow and he would offer his mind state to the shrine and bow to bow to his mind state, whatever it was. Oh, this idea, offer it there. There are going to be times when it's hard. You know, we're minding our business, things are going well, and then, you know, we see in meditation so often, you know, we sit down and it feels like things are going along and it's fairly clear and there's some ease and we're present, connecting with our experience, it's flowing along, and then it just falls apart and we're confused and resistant and we hate everything frustrated and it just feels like there's this back and forth a lot of the time, you know. Maybe it'd be easier if it just didn't change so much. If it was a, if it was a drag all the time, maybe we'd get used to it. But sometimes it's kind of, it's not bad, you know. It kind of comes together. And then we lose it again. A few years ago I started, I went on a retreat and I, at one point I thought, I had this feeling, if I had never meditated, I would be at least as good, if not better, <laughs> at it than I was at that time. just felt like a complete train wreck. We really need this quality. We have to nurture and cultivate patience, forbearance, acceptance, compassion, gentleness, these qualities that, that really... Um, characterize true patience. It gives us this possibility that we'll stay with these changes through the ups and downs and the winds of change that blow through our lives. And, you know, we come in here, we sit down, just a little peace maybe, a little ease, you know, we settle into our posture, allow the eyes to close, then everything we've ever repressed or denied <laughs> or done our best to forget shows up and and maybe it's not stuff that's difficult to be with but it's it's just boring and repetition is, or, or just embarrassing I mean, who in here is going to volunteer if i have a a machine that will allow you to broadcast the contents of your mind over the over the pa system are you going to sign up for that duty share that with the room I mean, if I did it, you would never have anything to do with me again, probably. <laughs> At least sometimes. Once in a while you'd say, oh, that's not so bad. <laughs> you know, there's so much. I mean, every song, every stupid TV show we watch, leave it to beavers in there. <laughs> My three sons, Mr. Ed. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. <laughs> oh, Wilbur. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to show up sometime. <laughs> My favorite Martian. I'm, I'm dating myself here. These are, <clears throat> for those of you who didn't grow up here, these are stupid TV shows from the 60s, late 50s and 60s. You know, and there's so much that we find unacceptable. <laughs> You know, it reminds me of a story I read somewhere, someone told once of um, the, the great Tibetan 
teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and he was, this was a thing, event over in Berkeley here in the Bay Area, I think, and it was a, a big public event. A lot of people had come, a big, big hall, and people had, you know, paid, paid quite a bit of money to come and, and hear Rinpoche speak and offer teachings, and, and he tended to be quite late, and he was exceptionally late this evening, that evening, and and he came in, and the first thing he said when he when he came out uh, to speak was, "If you want your money back, it's all right. Just go to the door and ask for it back. It's quite fine. In fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, it's best not to begin. It's difficult. It's terrible, and you have to face all kinds of things that you won't like. As far as the ego is concerned, it's just one insult after another." I mean, sometimes it feels like this. Contents of our mind, like one insult after the, after the next. But we have to develop when we do. That's the power of this practice. We develop a relationship with our whole being, all parts of it. Patience is just an absolute necessity. As one of my teachers once said that this, this path, this practice, requires what he called relentless patience. Relentless patience. <clears throat> you know, we have this sense, so I, there's so much in the way of my practice. And I have to get rid of things or achieve some special state, some special time and some future state of grace where where understanding will arise. But practice happens right here and now in the middle of the whole mess. In this body, this body, this mind right now. This is, this is where practice happens. This is where Dhamma is revealed. So patience gives us this um, ability to navigate this process with kindness, with gentleness, some sense of stability. We can remain steady because there's times when we're going to be lost in confusion until we're fully enlightened. There's times when it's going to be hard, maybe even really really challenging, very painful. We have to really remind ourselves that this path takes time. We're unlearning a lot of habits that are deeply, deeply embedded in the fabric of our perception and the way we deeply conditioned. You know, if this was easy, we'd all be fully enlightened. We've been putting in some really sincere effort here. You know, this isn't just a special retreat for remedial yogis. (laughs) We're all remedial. The only way we're going to unlearn these these deeply conditioned habits is to stick with it, be resolute. So often, life will present us with opportunities to develop patience that we really wish we weren't getting. I know that's been the case for me. It was so much the case when I was my sister, um, the oldest of of my siblings, and and I am the youngest. We were the most involved with looking after my parents in their last years of their lives. And my mother had very, um, quite a lot of... um, diminishing of her her mental faculties, some form of 
dementia that came in her later years. And my father had a very hard time with that. My parents were together for 70 years at the time that they, they died about 10 weeks apart, almost 92, both of them. 70 years, can you imagine? That's a long time just to breathe let alone stay with the same person. <laughs> they seem to be quite fond of one another. One of my friends came by to visit. My folks were probably in their late 80s. And they were sitting on the couch in the house holding hands. And uh, my friend was so touched by that that they would be sitting there holding hands at that time, having been together so long. There must have been a lot of patience developed in that, that 70 years together. But it was really hard and, you know, yeah, if you ever want a reality check on how your practice is going, spend time with your family. <laughs> you know, there, you know, I was, I was, I'm supposed to be this wise kind of wise, meditationally wise, meditation teacher, you know, and I'd show up and, you know, here I am, it's like I'm a, a morose teenager or an angry little child, little child, <laughs> you know, and they weren't trying to push my buttons, but they sure could do it. <laughs> and, you know, I'd be saying, I'd find myself having said something that I just, oh God, so painful to hear it come out and having to pick up the pieces from that. And boy, was that a training in patience. And my mother saying the same things over and over. I know many of you have had this experience. And, and so really getting to know impatience and then learning so much about patience and forgiveness. Boy, those two go hand in hand. And that's where we learn about these things. We learn about uh, letting go and release by seeing when we cling and hold on. And we learn about equanimity by getting to know reactivity. You know, so we open to impatience, feel it, see what happens in the body, what's in the mind, what happens when we identify with these feelings. Through learning how to relate wisely to the energy of impatience, that's how we cultivate patience. <clears throat> A couple of qualities that I want to point to that support the development the, uh, of this parami kanti, kanti parami, patience. This quality that I've used the term and we might call gentle forbearance. You know, even in times of in, when the impatience is really triggered, really strong, this quality of gentle forbearance can maybe. Um, open up enough space in the mind and the heart that we can uh, touch into our commitment to uh, avoid intentionally causing harm. Might be enough space there that we can exercise some restraint to really bring some wisdom to bear just through considering this intention around non-harming. This for gentle forbearance gives us some space that we can um, touch into uh, this quality of forgiveness. 
And the way that's linked to and infused with compassion, the compassion that uh, John spoke about so beautifully last night. And the way these support the development of patience, you know, we, there's this space to reflect and connect with the inner turmoil that might be present for someone else. You know, and the compassion we can feel for the suffering and confusion that arises in the mind and can lead to unskillful actions. And we've seen this in our own mind and heart. We've seen what happens when suffering and confusion or aversion or greed have the upper hand and the actions that can follow from that. We understand this in our own mind. We can understand it operating in someone else's mind. And it lets us distinguish between someone's essential goodness and unskillful actions they may have done, actions that were born of suffering and confusion that had the upper hand. And we can forgive, bring patience to bear and forgive this suffering being. Not the action, that's an important distinction to make. Some actions are not forgivable, never will be but we can possibly start to forgive the confused, suffering mind and heart in another. And this, this understanding, this compassion that we can touch there as the doorway into forgiveness can open the door to um, this quality of bodhicitta that Brian spoke about in an earlier talk. We, we've touched on this in various ways. <clears throat> cultivates uh, patience. It informs and supports the cultivation of patience. And it's said that the Buddha was moved to teach out of compassion, seeing beings trying to be happy and doing the very, the very thing that caused them to suffer. And we see how that happens in our own mind and heart. You know, we touch into the, the depth, the breadth of the unreliability, insecurity that is woven into the fabric of um, this human condition. We see the universality of that, the size of that cloth. You know, we see that dukkha on this level is not a personal problem. It impacts all beings. It's deeply embedded ailment. And when we understand this and we see that so much suffering in the world arises out of the confused mind and heart, beings trying to be happy and doing that which leads to suffering because of what's, what's present in the mind. This is the seed of wars and everything else comes from this. And so this gentle forbearance and compassion and this understanding of, of our practice being for the benefit of others, it can arise and will say, let me be with this difficult state for the benefit of all beings. Maybe we can't be with it for our own, for ourselves. Let me be with this unpleasant sensation, this difficult mind state as a gift, as an offering to all beings. Hold it in that way. Broadens it so much. This understanding that this practice is never just about ourselves. It's always bigger than that. 
these deeply conditioned mental habits that I was talking about, boy, they give us plenty of opportunity to develop patience. You know, we see the same thing and we get caught again. And we've seen it from every side. And we still get hooked. One of my colleagues and teacher of mine calls these things karmic knots. Remember, not so long ago, being on a retreat and, and just hooked by this old pattern, deep one. Thought I'd seen through it so thoroughly. And I, in my mind, I said to myself, you know, Greg, this is not, this is probably not the last time you're going to feel this way. And it was this movement of kindness, not of defeat and resignation, but this response that said, said you know, I have to bow to this thing. This is a deep one. This caring patience that allows us to see these deeply conditioned patterns, these old karmic knots, these difficulties, not, not just as obstacles to our freedom, but as the very vehicle for liberation. And someone said this, this isn't me, I don't know where I heard this, but someone said it's a great thing to remember. If it's in the way, it is the way. If it seems to be in the way, it's the way, that's the way. Maybe some of you know where that came from, but it's such a great thing to reflect. And so then we can find a way to relate where um, find freedom right in the middle of an experience that has, feels just like a problem, like a limitation or an obstacle. Right in that moment, the heart can open and we can bring in this quality of patience, this gentle forbearance, and this sense, let me open to this for the benefit of all beings. <clears throat> There's a technical definition of patience from one of the texts. It's kind of, it's, it has some useful considerations. It said, it said that patience, these, these definitions, there's, there's many of them, they have a, a characteristic, a function, a manifestation, an approximate cause. So patience is said to have the characteristic of acceptance. Its function is to endure the desirable and the undesirable. Its manifestation is tolerance or non-opposition. And seeing things as they really are is its proximate cause. Some interesting things. This quality of acceptance, that's its characteristic. This characteristic uh, of acceptance that's not resignation, which is a state of collapse and defeat, but the acceptance that is vital and connected, that stands on reality, this is the way it is, the truth of things in the moment. Not, it's like this, it's not how I think it should be, it's like this. And this leads to this proximate cause, seeing things as they really are. And we get so focused on how we think it should be, we lose sight of the way it really is. But by turning to the truth of things, we can open to uh, deeper considerations. We open to the truth of change, to this unreliable, conditioned nature of all experience. We see that the path unfolds lawfully. It's not going to happen on our schedule necessarily. And it says, that definition said the function is said to be the ability to endure the to endure the desirable and the undesirable. 
or the pleasant, the unpleasant, agreeable, disagreeable. Switch all those words around. There's a a discourse, it's quite a beautiful long teaching where the Buddha is instructing his son Rahula. And at one point he says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts, contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Develop meditation that is like the earth. can remain steady like the earth itself, this sense of being impartial, firm, all kinds of things fall on the earth. The earth endures it all. It's like a mountain. The rain, the sun, the rain falls on the mountain, the sun shines, snow falls. The mountain is not moved. You know, and we don't think of having to endure the agreeable very, oh, I have to endure this pleasant experience. But I think this points to the fact we endure it in that we know that it won't last, that it's subject to change. It points to this deep acceptance and and integration of this understanding into our very being, where we we endure the agreeable in that we don't cling to it. We enjoy it and we let it go when it leaves. We can be with life in a balanced way. Sometimes this quality of patience shows up in the world, manifests as this incredible courage courage and compassion. Last night, John read a uh, quotation um, from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that John Lewis said he reflected on. I wanna read another quotation from Dr. King. This is from Uh, a Christmas sermon on peace. We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we will still love you. We cannot in good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And so throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit culturally and otherwise for integration and we'll still love you. But be assured we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. This was in the, the height of the, the violence around the civil rights movement in this country in the 60s. And this reflects this, one of the most beautiful aspects, I think, of patience. This, this incredibly powerful expression of 
the courageous aspect of compassion. Compassion has this courageous part to it. I love the word courage. That word, the root of it is the root for, word for heart in the Latin languages. Corazón in Spanish, cuore in Italian, cur in French. All that's the root, courage, heartfulness. It's incredible power in that. The compassion that knows suffering, understands the nature of delusion, give rise to uh, harmful actions, understands what it is like when the mind and heart are filled with fear and pain and is able to bring kindness and compassion to bear in the face of that. The poet uh, John Chardy had a beautiful description of patience, speaks to this. said, patience is the art of caring slowly. And one thing that's really worth remembering as we walk this path, as we engage with this practice as we, we engage in it for the long haul. When I, I was very new to practice, my first three-month retreat, I sat, I'd been meditating for about six months, and I sat for three months. And then I went in to see one of my teachers, and I said to them, I'm in this for the long haul. I didn't know what that meant, but that was... That was my sense. I didn't know what that would look like. I said that. To say that out loud, I'm in this for the long haul. Very powerful for me. And, And to remember as we walk this path, if we are in it for the long haul, reminding ourselves that most worthwhile things in life take time to develop and grow. Here's a... A few words from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tan Jeff, teacher, writer, scholar, <clears throat> translator. <clears throat> Good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. So we do the practice focusing on what we're doing rather than getting into an internal dialogue about when the results are going to come, what they're going to be like, and how long we can, how we can speed up the practice. Many times our efforts to speed things up actually just get in the way. And as for whether the results are coming as quickly as you'd like, or when they do come, whether they're going to stay as long as you'd like, well, that's going to depend on what you're doing right here and now. Our desire to have the results come, our desire to have them stay is not going to keep them there. The actual doing of the practice, that's what's going to make the difference. So I'll leave you tonight with a, a poem by Linda France called Dreaming the Real. I'm lying down, looking at the color of sky falling through trees, 
dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go, simply exhale so the day could breathe itself in and open without me standing in the way? How could I forget the tender grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, warm as midday light? Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain, all its shades of gray. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin and to master the art of loving it, feel it love me back under my skin. Let's sit quietly for a minute and listen to the frogs serenade us. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And we have uh, a little over half an hour now for some walking meditation. And um, we'll gather again at nine for the chanting. And uh, this evening we'll we'll do the Karaniya Metta Sutta uh, call and response for those who are still learning it. So um, if you haven't come, you might come. The rule is you can leave right after the chanting and the sitting is uh, short following that, so please be welcome.